0: Thanks for downloading this podcast from the University of Portsmouth. I'm John Worsey, a writer, and in Life Solved, we're asking the big questions about our world, from politics to technology, our bodies and our environments. Today, we'll hear how a team of scientists at Portsmouth has been experimenting with a native species that's got the potential to clean up our waters, conserve our marine environments and protect our coastlines.
1: The impact they can have on water quality is mm. phenomenal if they're in the higher enough numbers. And that can control the nutrient status of waters or the nitrogen and phosphates runoff and things and out of mm. sewage.
0: But human activities nearly wiped out our native oysters. Is it too late to save them?
1: If you push an ecosystem so far, if you lose too much biodiversity, then it loses resilience. Mm. And it loses resilience to future change.
0: One group of researchers at Portsmouth thinks there may yet be hope. Emma Fields spoke to Dr Joanne Preston.
1: I look at marine organisms mostly in coastal environments, Mm -hmm. in temperate environments and not tropical. I do a lot of work using DNA, looking at the DNA sequences of lots of different organisms and see who's related to who, and then you can basically use that to look back in time and see how things have evolved, Mm -hmm. and then you can understand you have these patterns of evolution, and then you can understand the processes of evolution, then you can start to see how marine organisms have evolved over time and how diversity is generated. I work with organisms that seem really dull and boring, like sponges or oysters yeah. and things. And then when I start explaining to them what they do yes. and yeah. some of the sort of facts behind it, they're like, oh, wow, I never yeah. knew that. The focus of
0: a lot of Joe's recent work is centered around the humble oyster. Why? Because these little creatures have a huge impact on our coastal and marine environments.
1: They're bioremediators. They all sort of hoover up, clean, filter the water, you know, so and all those benefits that come with that, you know, I mean the sort of eutrophic green pea soup we get yeah. out there. It's always going to be a nutrient-rich system because there's mudflats and things. But there no. didn't used to be as much mud as there is now. No, there's no. far more mud than there used to be. Less salt, salt yeah. marsh, less sea grasses, less oyster beds. And if they're removing all the nutrients, that the algae can't grow. You get clearer water. That means the light like penetrates the sea grasses. The sea grasses will grow better. And you get some amazing gullies and seawalls off, you know, off Ireland off the Welsh Pembrokeshire coast. Mm. Also, one of the things that I'm very much interested in at the moment is restoration of the native oyster. Mm. And one of the the things about this species, or oysters particularly, is they're referred to as biogenic or Mm. ecosystem engineers, which means they sort of create a whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Oysters themselves, historically, would have formed these oyster reefs that literally don't exist anymore in Mm -hmm. temperate waters. They've been completely wiped out. There used to be this massive bed in the North Sea around 40 metres deep that was just completely just fished up.
0: The overfishing of oysters and damage to their natural environments has had a huge impact on the prevalence of these creatures in past decades. Jo and her students have been experimenting in local waters. 85% of oyster
1: reefs are extinct. Wow. So there used to be the the global coverage has been diminished by 85%. And that's the impact of humans overfishing. Over extraction, coastal development. And of the ones that remain, 15% remains there, most of them are in... Poor conditions. It's like the temperate equivalent of a, a coral reef. Mm. Several waves of disease wipe them out, which is probably related to the over extraction in the first place. Mm. But oysters themselves create this three dimensional hard substrate that supports a huge amount of biodiversity mm. because it becomes a habitat for other things to live on. And mm. well, one of the the big drivers is the loss of biodiversity that has mm. occurred over the last sort of 100 and 150 years due to anthropogenic disturbances Mm -hmm. impacts and there's been many mass extinctions over the history of our our planet but this one's driven by humanity and if you push an ecosystem so far if you lose too much biodiversity then it loses resilience Mm -hmm. and it loses resilience to future change it has um, less tools in its box basically Mm -hmm. less capable to adapt to say climate change or, or future pressures, be it pollution. We did 120 grabs or more in Portsmouth, Langston, and Chichester Harbour, and I think we found three oysters mm. in all of those. The highest density of Crepidula, I think, it was 8,000 per metre squared. There's ones that look like little slippers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Crepidula fornicata, yeah. and that's the invasive American slipper limpet. That came over with oysters in the 1920s into Essex and has just sort of colonised round, yeah. And the seabed now in Langston is entirely dominated by Capigula fornicata*, yeah. which is one of the problems because the oyster larvae don't like to settle on *Craperia fornicata*. So there's yeah. been an ecological shift, mm. phase shift, probably combined with a bit of poor water quality. Basically, the oysters no longer really on the seabed, and so an ecological niche became available, yeah. And the slipper olympic has no native, no predators. It's an invasive species off the yeah. way. There's an invasive species that has no real natural predators.
0: Jo studied restoration work in America and around the world, where reef restoration's shown multiple other benefits to coastlines and environments. She wondered if it was possible with our own native species, given how badly they'd been diminished. There was only one way to find out
1: we're trying to conserve a species back to an impoverished state because we've yes. forgotten what the more pristine state was Yeah. Yes. and so what some people are doing is going through like archaeological evidence and middens and mm-hmm. old transcripts to try and find and get a handle on what the what the ecosystem used to look like yeah. back in the late 1700s early 1800s before we over extracted yeah. so much to try and sort of get back to because otherwise if we try and restore it back to a impoverished states then it's not going to be resilient enough in terms of density and things like that yeah. so in the states that have combined a lot of work doing oyster restoration at the shoreline of salt marsh which is a wave break and promotes sedimentation on the other side which means that salt marshes which are being eroded due to wave motion yeah. are no longer and the sedimentation dynamics stop and then the salt marsh mm. starts encroaching And that's something we want to try in the handball to see if we can do it with this species
0: Jo and her PhD student were planning an experiment to see if placing artificial panels around the harbour would simulate the environment of a seabed or a benthic zone and allow a diverse life to bloom here once again. Around the same time Ben Ainsley's sailing team were looking to collaborate on building something sustainable as part of their new headquarters in the Solent. They got talking.
1: I said well why don't you try to do something of there? under the water cute, yeah. and we were going to try and stick these sort of panels all around the harbour to increase biodiversity and then the Blue Marine Foundation doing the oyster project was interested as well so then we just joined forces And mm-hmm. so we decided well what if we put them in cages yeah. suspended from marinas then we could monitor them they couldn't be fished they're less likely to get diseased because they're not in the seabed they're yeah. less likely to be predated on by crabs and whelks what we're doing really is we're sort of basically putting an oyster reef in vertically so yeah. it's completely it's sort of it's, it's, it's an artificial construct but we're, we're trying to recreate that yeah. oyster reef and we didn't know whether they'd like being suspended they're benthic organisms yeah. but they do do it they've done it with the fisheries it's like a pringle tube style stack that you slot oysters in and it means they're sort of orientated for maximum feeding and various yeah. other things and we tied four of these together and put three of those together and we got a cage a metal cage built around it and that was ours, that was prototype three, I think. Yeah. The first time we just had nets tied to the frames, metal frames. And so then we've rolled that out to six marinas across the whole of the Solent. Yeah.
0: As soon as Joe's initial experiments began to fare well, a marina group called MDL got behind the project, helping to fund a refined design. The potential for multiplying these mini ecosystem boosters is really exciting.
1: You can get little davits you just put on the side of the yeah. marina. Well, I think we just sort of do them half, because what you want to do is roll it out to marinas across the UK.
0: Cleaning the oyster cages is a grim but vital task to the survival of the oysters. And it was through this process that the experiment led to another exciting realisation. The oyster cages weren't just a booming site for oyster activity, but for surrounding organisms too.
1: My undergraduate started looking at the biodiversity associated with oysters mm-hmm. in the cage system that we've developed. And he found ninety five different species associated with oysters. And when we saw sort of, we have to clean the cage, we bring them up, they're just completely fouled. So there's just mm-hmm. so many things growing on it around it and so we have to sort of manage the cages so Mm. you can get the water flow through and so they can eat all the sort of phytoplankton, and the algae and everything in there but that's when we noticed like how biodiverse Mm. and it was and it's probably slightly different to the biodiversity on the seabed but not that much Mm. and it changes quite a lot from different sites the type Mm. of species are found there it it acts as a bit like an artificial reef but suspended the biogenic habitat so it's basically just a, a habitat that's of biological origin as they sort of on the seabed oyster beds they die they leave shells they're very gregarious they mm. like to settle on each other's shells yeah so oyster larvae love oyster shells more than anything so then they sort of create this three-dimensional structure with lots of nooks and crannies and the yeah. calcareous um sort of substrate is a settlement substrate for like polychaetes and tunicates and various other things they're worms okay. they're sort of they're yeah. segmented worms that live in little calcareous tubes. Yeah. Tunicates are sea squirts, there's these things called ascidians and sponges, Um, and then you get some algae growing on it, and then it becomes a refuge for juvenile fish, you get lots of crustaceans, shrimpy things like grazing on it, and then bigger fish, so it becomes like what comes a nursery ground for smaller fish to feed on the little bits of sponges and Mm. crustaceans and be protected before they go into the ocean. It's brilliant. I mean, it's sort of still, we're, we're sort of working out what's the need to model, the turnover rate of the cages, how many, because they only have lived to five or six years in the mm. wild. They might live slightly longer in the cages. So that's basically the system. And now we've we started off, we've we tested the different densities to see which worked. We're testing if they reproduce, mm-hmm. testing when they reproduce.
0: The question of reproduction hung in the air. Without a happy breeding oyster community, the cage experiment would be a failure. But the team soon realised that the artificial environment was setting the mood for some unexpected results.
1: Now oysters uh, are protandrous hermaphrodites, which means they alter sex sequentially. Mm -hmm. And so they... This is my one joke I ever tell when I'm speaking, they start off male, then they improve. Oh, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> yeah. So when two to three years old, they become sexually mature yeah. and they become female, but then they can swap back to male and female and throughout the growing season. Okay. But what it is thought is that the ratio is density dependent. So there's no point investing in building up all these ovaries if there are no males around. One of the problems is there's such a low density on the seabed. Yeah. So they're not very reproductively viable but putting them in a cage there's like we had sort of 120 oysters next to each other so they yeah. were having a, a party noise, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. so then we monitored uh, how many of them are reproducing and how fecund they are how fertile they are and um, we've still got lots of pots of gonads and various yeah. things to analyze but they're reproducing really well in the cages which is again that's a surprise because nice. there's, there's greater stresses of temperature variation of things at mm. the surface than there is at the bottom
0: After finding that invasive slipper limpid or crepidula shells were dominating the seabed, Joe and the team have been putting out roof tiles to see if they can mimic a natural shell-like place for the oyster larvae to call home. There's hope that this will tip the balance towards a more stable oyster population and in turn support other diverse organisms in these environments.
1: We put different settlement plates out to look for oyster settlement by the mm. cages, and we put plastic, concrete, capidula cells, old oyster shells and new oyster shells. And mm. the capidula for settlement was slightly better than plastic, mm. but worse than concrete. And sort of, I think, you know, um, there's 10 times more settlements found on the oyster shells. So not only have they been outcompeted, the, if you think about those larvae, they're swimming around yeah. trying to find their nice little oyster shell, and they keep on touching down and to finding capidula... And they'll sort of probably delay their settlement metamorphosis mm-hmm. that will probably have an implication in their sort of future fitness and so what we've been doing is putting settlement plates out mm-hmm. in locations that has cages and that don't have cages using a model from a hydrogen model of where the particles shouldn't shouldn't go to see if there's any settlement from yeah well we don't know it's from the cages per se but settlement in proximity yeah. to the cages one female oyster in her prime like every time she spawns, she'll produce like a million larvae wow. or, or more so obviously not many of those survive you know it's all between mm. one and five percent but even so you've got now yeah. at the moment we did start off with a few thousand oysters in cages and went up to ten thousand now we just put more around there's twenty thousand oysters in cages around the mm. solent now
0: so the challenge isn't only about creating a good environment for oysters to live and reproduce in for the short term but also in managing the wider system so the larvae have a good spot or substrate to settle into. Jo is passionate about her vision of restoring local oyster populations in the Solent and the dramatic impact of reviving these benthopelagic that's living near the bottom of the sea, creatures.
1: In terms of the sort of biology, ecology, marine success would be to see a restored oyster population that is Mm -hmm. self-sustaining. That might take more than five years, it probably will. But an oyster population that is well enough protected and managed to be self-sustaining, self-recruiting, and it could be—it could be transformational. What, what we see out there is not how it looked 100 years ago, 150 years ago. There were no slipper limpets mm. at all out there. So the big piles of pigeon on the beach didn't exist. Mm. The seabed wouldn't have been the fine, silty mud. It would have been encrusted with oysters and all Mm. the biodiversity associated with that, you know, going back sort of 150 years. There would have been far more salt marsh. There would have been more fish, greater biodiversity. And the water quality would have been far clearer because one of the things oysters do, they're filter feeders. All Mm. they do is filter the seawater, consuming the algae and bits of organic matter therein. So Mm. they have a... Big role in benthopelagic coupling, bringing things from the water column and taking it into the benthos, mm. and the impact they can have on water quality is mm. phenomenal if they're in high higher enough numbers, and that can control the nutrient status of waters or the nitrogen and, and sort of phosphates that come from runoff and things and out of the mm. sewage and it's those nitrates and phosphates that cause the algal blooms, the big yeah. green algal blooms, and that causes reduction in oxygen in the water. One oyster can filter 200 litres of seawater a day. There's some debate whether oysters actually weather up to a certain density. They're a carbon sink. But after a certain point, it might become a carbon source as well. But, you know, for human impact, basically, you'll get a prettier, yeah, (laughs) slightly prettier marine environment, better for recreational fishing, better water quality, Mm. better biodiversity, slightly less green slimy mud.
0: Jo's now turning her attention to sponges, another symbiotic hero of the sea and work is ongoing with the oysters in the Solent. Let's hope in the years to come we can all enjoy the positive impact along the coast and in our harbours of a revived and burgeoning population and the diverse ecosystems they'll create. You can follow our research at port.ac.uk forward slash research. Our new magazine, Solve, follows University of Portsmouth research when it's put into practice. It's full of news and stories on our world-leading advances and the changes these are making to lives and futures across the world. You can read more from Joanne's work with our native oysters in the very first issue. It's available at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. Next time on Life Solved, how easy is it to change the law?
1: Sooner or later, they are going to also think about reforming an act that's 180 years old. Then you get the case law coming in.
0: You can share this podcast using the hashtag #LifeSolved, or maybe just share the big idea with a friend. If you subscribe in your podcast app, You'll also get each episode of Life Solved automatically. I'm John Worsey, and we'll be back with another story
1: next time.